Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 28th, 2020. This is episode 2669 of the Survival Podcast, and today's show is going to build on yesterday's show. I had Joseph Simcox on yesterday, and that guy was a phenom, and... Man, I really wish that we didn't have the technical problems we did in the latter half of that show. Um, man, there's so much I want to talk to this guy about. And I, I, I'll, I'll tell you up front that he caught me off guard. Um, all I had was the notes that are the submission form for the guest form. And that's pretty, pretty dry. It tells me if the person has a good proposal or not. And then sometimes I dig deep into a potential guest to make sure that they qualify for the show. A lot of times just take a look and, okay, they're legitimate, they seem like they know what they're talking about, sort of, anyway. And if it's an interesting topic, we'll have them on. If it doesn't work, I just just won't air the episode. I mean, it's it's. I've had a few times, it's not many in 12 years, but I've had a few times where I've gotten somebody on and went, you know, I'm sorry, this just isn't working. Um, you guys are more important to me than a guest's ego. That guy was the bomb, and it was all over the map with the topics. I need to get him back several times and go into specific one thing. Because we can do one thing for two hours, I imagine. And he's big on plants of the world. And we didn't talk a ton about specific plants yesterday. A bunch of them got dropped in there. Like, whoa, that, oh, wait, i got to look that up. Um, but it got me thinking, like, what else this guy got? So when I found a three-part video series by him. I'm not sure who produced it. It's just basically somebody with a camera while he's at a public presentation at a garden in Connecticut. And he goes through probably 30, maybe 40 plants in those three videos, and I picked 12 of them. And this is the 12 that I picked, or the criteria, I won't tell you what they are yet, but the criteria for the 12 that I picked would be um, unusual to this audience. So some of the stuff's like, there's a lot of people who would be like, wow, but they're like, Jack talked about that a lot. So while a couple of these I have mentioned before, um, most of them you've probably never even heard of on this show before. Uh, two, they had to be edibles. Uh, three, they had to offer something that you know you probably didn't already have. And four, they had to be cool. And some of them are so new to me, I haven't been able to find a lot of information on them. Some of them I haven't been able to find a seed source or at least a trusted seed source for you. Um, but I think you're going to like today's show. It's very much going to be sort of an old school show, even though it's inspired by a recent interview. When I started doing this show back in 2008, yeah, that long ago, uh, the shows that I did where I would take 12 rare plants or something like that were always some of the most popular, generated the most conversation, the most feedback. So this is going to be very much like that. It's a Thursday show, so there's not a lot of uh, housekeeping. We kind of just jump right into things. So on that, I want to start out with quote of the day. Uh, and you might think since this was inspired by uh, by Joseph Simcox that I would have a quote from him. I don't. We're going to talk enough about stuff he had to say today. Um, the quote that I came up with for today was one I heard a long time ago, and it really resonated with me, uh, by a guerrilla gardener named Ron Finley. Ron Phil Finley uh, is an amazing man who does his guerrilla gardening in south-central Los Angeles. He's an amazing TED Talk. I have a link to it in today's show notes. And at one point in that talk, he said, Growing your own food is like printing your own money. And that's one of those things, like if you get to do a big-time public talk, like a TED Talk that's going to be online and lots of people are going to share it and all, do you want at least one line that you drop in that, that five years later, a significant portion of the people that heard it will remember it well enough that they'll repeat it? That was the home run. That is, if you just type that into Google, you will find... Hundreds of sites citing that quote back to Ron Finley. Growing your own food is like printing your own money. And that's what I want to frame today's show with because I want you to think about what, the, what incredible value you get from finding just a few new plants every year that provide you food or fiber or medicine or income or anything valuable, a, a, a tea, an herb, it doesn't matter what it is. If you find something like that, Once a, one a year, every year for the next 20 years, the value it brings to your life is incredible. 
And if we compound that with Ron Finley's statement of growing your own food is like printing your own money, I think when you not only find new plants that do those things for you, but you find plants that are easy to grow, pest and disease resistant, really taste amazing, highly productive, things that grow like a weed, that once you get them going, they're just there for you, and you don't really have to work hard to grow your own money anymore, print your own money. It's kind of like a regular garden is like printing $5 bills. There's nothing wrong with $5 bills. I like Abe Lincoln. Makes me happy when I have some $5 bills. I like that. But imagine you have the ability to print $5 bills. Pretty good, huh? But you can only print so many bills a day. Let's say it's a little bit of work to print those bills. It's not like you're not like the Fed Reserve where the printing machine just goes brrrr, right? You actually have to do some work so you can only make so much $5 bills every day. When you find plants like we're talking about today, at least many of them, or you find out that one of them sitting in your backyard in your garden right now and you eat it but you don't eat a very valuable part of it because you thought it would kill you but it won't, then it's like somebody comes along and goes, hey, check that out. You have a way to print your own money and it's not counterfeit. Those are That's legitimate $5 bills you're printing there. I'll make you a deal. I want one of your $5 sets of plates, and I'll give you a $20 plate for it. Because I have two $20 plates, and, you know, I, I, I want to print some fives. You'd take the deal. It's like upgrading the face value of the bills that you print when you get something that just goes like crazy, provides you food, and solves maybe not even something that's so much better than something that it kind of replaces, but it solves a problem. Um, here's an example. The first plant today is called Popolo. Popolo is a broadleaf plant that is in the same family as cilantro. And I've talked about another plant called culantro. And my problem with culantro, and it might actually be the same species, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but there may be narrow leaf and broad leaf, and they both may be the same. I haven't done enough research to know if Popolo and Colantro are the same thing yet. Seems like they might be. But So I looked up this Popolo, and I immediately thought maybe it is in the same family as Colantro based on the way that Joseph talked about it. And I found uh, an article by someone we know well here at TSP, Stephen Scott. Um, he is the guy behind Terroir Seeds, and you get a discount from his site uh, if you're an MSB member. And he calls it a heat-loving cilantro alternative. And basically, it is a plant that tastes a lot like cilantro, has a little bit more flavor, but it has that same type of flavor, which means you're either going to love it or you're going to think it tastes like feet. I mean, there's just something about that cilantro flavor that people either love or hate. There's never someone that's like, you know what, cilantro's okay. I could take it or leave it. It's always like, Aah! or oh my God, give me more. Right? But what you find when you try to grow cilantro in a lot of parts of the United States, especially here in Texas, it's either too cold to grow it, or the second it gets warm enough to grow it, it gets too hot to grow it, and it bolts. And I have never been able to grow cilantro and be able to actually enjoy it because I have to pick it when it's really, really tiny because, I mean, even when it gets a little bit of size to it, it starts sending up stalks and it goes to what you say, you know, call it coriander seed. And this doesn't do that. Well, I have had a lot of problems getting the colantro seed to germinate. Um, Steven's article about this, and I again, I have a link to that in the notes today, um, is... It solves this issue if it's the same thing, and if not, it doesn't matter. The seeds on this stuff look like dandelion seeds. Not exactly, but they have that look. They have like a long, sticky thing, and then they have like a tuft so that they can fly through the air like a dandelion seed. And what they figured out at Terroir Seeds is if you, if you break that little tuft off, germination drops to below 10%. If you leave it on germination is in the range of 90%. And he talks about the best way to germinate it and all in his article. So I'm like, okay, this I'm ordering this today myself. I've got to have this. This must go in my garden. I will now have something that tastes like cilantro. It's easier to grow from two great people giving me different pieces of information. They solved this problem, and this is why I linked for a seed source to Terroir Seeds. Not only do they support us, etc., they solved the problem. They ship their popolo seed 
um, in a box, a little box that protects it so it doesn't get broken. And I can't wait to start growing this. Again, it's called Popolo. And all the notes have everything you need today. Spelling, links, information, follow-up information, seed sources for some of the stuff. Um, but, you know, just so you can... I'm going to spell some of these things to make sure you know what I'm talking about if you're only listening. Popolo is P-A-P-A-L-O. Popolo. So that's my number one for you today. And I again, I'm excited, if you can't tell about growing this because the culantro has been a bust for me i just have not been able to get the germination and i've tried paper towel in the bag like some other things i've solved with that i've tried uh the parks biodome i have tried all kinds of things and i've gotten none to germinate i've even solved my problem with the chinese celery i get that to germinate with the parks biodome i couldn't get it to germinate i'm going to try the popolo next up today i have talked to you a bunch about amaranth um, Joseph was really hyped up in his video. Of course, he's hyped up about everything, it seems like, um, about a Bangladesh variety of red amaranth. Well, did some research, and I found a seed source for red Bangladesh amaranth. Now, I can't tell by looking at the picture on the seed pack and reading the information if it's that much different than any other red amaranth. And I grow a lot of red amaranth, and I always have, and I love red amaranth as a green. Uh, that's the main way that I use it. I always let some go to seed, but I de generally grow it for uh, the leaves and what have you. In his talk, Joseph was talking about how in Bangladesh they grow it for the stem. So they let it grow a little bit bigger than I typically take it as a green, and they cook the stems. So I'm going to get some of this stuff and give it a try. It's, it's, it's not hugely expensive. Um, the website that I found it on does not look like it sells to U.S. So I don't actually have a seed source for you yet or for myself. But by being able to look at what it is and see what it is, you know, maybe you'll be able to track it down and uh, figure out how you can actually uh, get some of this stuff in hand but that was a, another one I'm, I'm not quite as excited because in the end I, I, I have a feeling it's going to be a red amaranth you know but we'll, we will see and I wanted you guys to know about that one next up this is one I, I have mentioned before and however I, I, I kind of feel like this was like the impetus that I needed to get off my butt here and uh, go ahead and start growing some you know I grow a lot of basil And there's a variety of basil that's referred to as lettuce leaf basil. This stuff is huge. I mean, big as your face, one leaf, huge. Uh, kind of a wrinkly, crinkly, savory basil with a great basil flavor. Really good for pastas and salads. Lettuce wraps. I mean, imagine having a piece of basil so big that you can make a wrap out of it. That sounds pretty cool to me, especially being the keto guy, because we're always looking for something that we can, you know, wrap meat in or wrap something in because we don't really do a lot with tortillas, because keto, not tortillas, got it, right? Yeah, man, uh, so I have a link to that, and that one, it goes to Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, and it just seems like a, a really no-brain, easy thing to do, and one of those plants that I, I look at this, and I've done it with basil here, just regular Genovese basil, um, a great plant to make a land race with. So it's a land race. A land race is when you grow something on your property, and you grow a lot of it, and you kind of put it everywhere that you can put it, like not just in one little part of your garden, but you kind of let it grow like a weed, and you find any place on your property where it'll grow. So you're growing a bunch of it, and you let a lot of it go to seed. And especially something that produces seed fairly quickly, like basil can, you harvest seed and you replant it. So maybe you do two or three generations in a season. And you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it. And the one thing you really do is when you see that plant come back on its own, like someplace you didn't throw seed, you didn't plant seed, it just, from the seed that got blown around, it came back, you make sure you harvest some of that seed and you put it somewhere you know it's going to replace itself. And over time, you develop a race of, of that seed. So it's, in, it's it, obviously it's still lettuce leaf, basil is a variety, but now it's like Tom's Backyard version of lettuce leaf basil. The one I've done that with more so than even basil here is arugula. I have arugula 
that I've been on property seven years, but it's probably in its 21st, 22nd generation on this property. And you can't stop it now. It's impossible. You, you walk through the grass sometimes, and you're like, what, what is that smell? I know that's, that's kind of nutty. But, uh, arugula? And you look down, and you're standing on arugula. And it just grows in different, and if the ducks don't find it anyway, it just grows here and there. So uh, lettuce leaf basil would be a great thing to do that with. The next one is something um, that he spent a lot of time, and it was the, the number two out of his three videos, um, called achosa. Um, achosa is something I've talked about before. It's in the cucumber slash gourd family. And what makes it really unique is from everybody I've talked to that's grown it, there doesn't seem to be any diseases that affect it. And it doesn't seem to be any pests that affect it. Which is kind of crazy when it's in the cucumber family and there's so many diseases and pests that affect cucumbers. Cucumber beetle don't want it. No mosaic viruses. None of that stuff. It's just... And when it's little, so it produces these little gourd... They call it lady slipper gourd is another name for it. These little hollow fruits and when they're small they're sweet and they taste kind of like cucumber now i've never actually eaten one so i'm taking other people's word for this uh, and as they get bigger they tend to become more bland and they need to be cooked they become tougher you open them up take a little bit of seed that's in them out and you stuff them with like let's say meat and rice or if you're keto maybe you use something like a seasoned beef or a seasoned pork mixed with something like cauliflower rice Right? That's what I'm thinking. Um, and you use them kind of like you would stuff a pepper. And they are kind of like kind of like a pepper and kind of like a cucumber. And somebody told me about these years ago, and I never got around to growing them. I tried growing them last year, and the advice was that they needed shade in the afternoon. Well, I, I did that. And they just never got really going. And the, the reality is the place I picked was more than just shade in the afternoon. It was only a very small amount of morning sun. In my new garden, I have this really great arch. And this is in a video that I put out today. It's linked in the notes. and It'll be in the Daily Mail and all as well. So I planted it in a place where it probably gets about six, seven hours of sun, and then it gets true afternoon shade. I planted one of them. It is, it's like six weeks old. It is huge already. It is, it is already half encompassed a 16-foot cattle panel arch. Like half of it's already covered. And it hasn't really set much for fruit yet. It's got little bitty uh, fruits on it where you've got the female and the male blossoms and you can see it. I'm not sure if any of them have actually set yet. They're a very small flower and a very small fruit when they start out. Um, but I'm very excited about this one. Again, it's called Achosa. Achosa, Achusa, Acocha. I've heard many different pronunciations. I think Acocha is what seems to be the, <clears throat> the right pronunciation to me. This is from Bolivia. Now, I have some from Terroir Seeds, UnderwoodGardens.com, um, and those are the ones I'm growing and trying to get some seed stock built up on because it's expensive. A packet of seeds is like five, six bucks, and it's got like six, eight seeds in it. And I think that's because they don't have a lot of seed. So, you know, if you're harvesting seed, every plant, you're, every fruit you're not harvesting to eat, you're taking seed. Because if you're like a commercial seed producer, you know, you're not going to be opening them up, taking the seeds out and eating them. You're either producing food or you're producing seed when you're at a commercial level, uh, in most instances anyway. So I think it just takes a lot of production to get a lot of seed. But it doesn't look like you need a lot of seed to get a lot of production, so that's the other way around. The other thing, though, is I've learned that there are dozens of these in different varieties, and many of them have never yet been brought to the United States. And this is something I'd love to get, like, ten totally different varieties and experiment with. So this is one I think that if we can, as a community, start reaching out to people that are maybe in Bolivia or in other countries uh, and getting different varieties of these and getting them going, I'm going to check eBay for different seed sources and stuff. Um, I think it could be a really valuable plant because when you have a plant that's something you really enjoy eating, um, is highly productive, and it seems like in my climate, it may be that they get really productive at the end of the season. So I'm going to end up with a huge vine. But as the as the weather begins to cool and fall is when I'll get my huge flush, which is a lot like I, with peppers. I usually get an early, huge production. Then they kind of go slow on me, and then they get big in the fall. It seems like maybe unless 
I can maybe get even earlier a start this time that I'm going to be waiting to the end of the season to get a lot of them. So I'm, I'm still up in the air on it, but I'm learning as I'm going, and I think this would be one for many of us to try. It grows like crazy in Connecticut. See, it's a tropical plant, but you can grow it in Connecticut. And it's I think it's probably one that's a, maybe it's not a per, true perennial, but it's probably like a biannual or something like that. Some that probably lives are a very short-lived perennial in the tropics. Whereas in the United States, of course, in most of our climate anyway, we would need to grow it as uh, an annual. Next up, I'm going to give you a plant right now. And when I say this, more than half of you, no matter how much you trust me, are not going to believe me. And you're going to have to look it up and research it for yourself to find out, yes, Jack's telling the truth, this really won't kill me. Um, you, If you garden, there's probably a plant you grow that you only take the fruit from and you never would even consider eating the leaves. And you're probably convinced if you eat those leaves, they will kill you. You'll die. Because they're a nightshade. And we all know about deadly nightshade. And indeed, there are nightshades that if you eat them, they will, in fact, make you sick and or kill you. Uh, some of them, parts are edible and other parts aren't. That would be like, for instance, potato. Potatoes in the nightshade family. If you eat the tuber of a potato, you're good to go. You eat potato greens. Remember, sweet potato greens, good to go. Totally different plant. Not a nightshade. Eat potato greens and you can kill yourself, literally. They And potato leaves look very similar to what? Tomatoes. So everybody knows if you eat tomato greens, you will die. No, you won't. They're actually delicious. Yes, I'm telling you, Jack Spirico, right here. You can look it up for yourself. Restaurants are starting to to, to uh, use tomato greens in like really high-end dishes now. Now, uh, here's what I think is interesting about this. There is a story from Thomas Jefferson about how people were afraid to eat tomatoes in this country raw. We were afraid of them because they, again, nightshade family, that type of thing. And there are nightshades that are very, very, very deadly. So somehow, as tomatoes were taken back to Europe, and then, of course, as Europeans continued coming to North America, the, the story became, with you think of Italian cooking and how much tomatoes go in uh, Italian cooking, well, tomatoes are toxic unless you cook them. And if you cook them, they won't kill you. And, of course, since everybody had cooked tomatoes and what have you that no one died, it became easy, easily accepted as truth. Kind of like a lot of things with COVID, right? Since everybody knows, it must be true. So we know eating a cooked tomato doesn't kill us because I see people do it all the time. But everybody knows tomatoes are poisonous, so a raw tomato must kill us. So this guy that wanted to get people, I don't remember who it was. I don't know if it was Jefferson himself or some other guy. I think Jefferson wrote about the guy. Um, wanted to get people eating tomatoes. Like he ate tomatoes. And he told everybody, that, and this was somewhere in Virginia, you know, tomatoes are, are good. You can eat tomatoes, and nobody believed him. So he made an announcement using, like, the, uh, you know, the, the, 18, the early 1800s uh, Internet, which was you tell a friend who tells a friend that tells a friend. I'm going to be, you know, at the town square, let's say Tuesday at noon, and I'm going to eat a whole basket of raw tomatoes. So, like, all the town came out, people from two towns over came out, everybody came out to watch this guy eat tomatoes. Now, they didn't do it because they were really curious as to whether or not you could actually do this. They were all convinced it was either a trick or this guy was going to die. They came out to watch this guy win a Darwin Award, basically. They figured it would be like saying, I'm going to eat five cyanide pills and show you cyanide doesn't kill me. And you might show up and go, I'm going to watch this guy kill himself. He's not going to get to the second pill. He's going to be dead. And then, you know, or if, and if I don't kill myself, then there must be some sort of magic trick. It's fake. It's like a, a Houdini thing. So they all show up, and he eats the tomatoes, and he doesn't die. And then, you know, like one person comes up and eats a little bit of tomato and says, well, it's pretty good. I don't feel bad. And then eventually that was the genesis of everybody in America accepting you could actually eat a tomato without killing yourself. I kind of feel that's what it's going to take for some people to accept what I've just told you about tomato leaves. And I'm going to tell you why. When Simcox said you could eat tomato leaves in his presentation, my first thought was bullshit. The only reason I was even open to it is because I just had him on the show, and I knew this guy was freaking smart. 
So he had a, a certain amount of credibility to me, and I still thought it was bullshit. And I thought, okay, this is some kind of a joke. He's gonna because he. Does, I, I watched another to give you a guy I, an idea how this guy is. I watched his TED talk. He gave us in Aruba. He gave about the first five minutes of it with a Russian accent. I would have totally bought it if he hadn't just been on the show, right? So um, he's a performer. Gets the audience. He had to go last at a TED convention. So, you know, everybody's probably falling asleep, ready to leave. So he did this Russian thing to wake everybody up. And, he, and then, like, right in the middle of talking, he just, he's talking in Russian, like a Russian dialect. And then he just goes, I'm not really Russian, but I was in Russia. And he just had the audience. So I thought, well, that's what he's doing. Like, he's going to pretend to eat and be like, ah, oh, don't eat that or whatever. Like, you, you can't trust everything I say or something. So he just starts munching on a tomato leaf. And then he gives a tomato leaf to a lady, and I'm like, son of a bitch. Now, I, I converted pretty fast, and I also was like, before I, I have a certain amount of responsibility here, before I go telling people they can eat tomato leaves, and I start getting emails from people like, my husband killed himself because you told him he could eat a tomato leaf, I better verify this. So I verified it from another independent source. See, there's a, there's a suggestion for our journalists when it comes to politics and all the shit that they cover. When you're going to say something's true, you get two independent sources on it. Or you don't say that it's true. You say it's an unconfirmed piece of information. I'm sorry, you guys don't have to do your jobs. That's why I have to tell you. But anyway, so I went out and got my second set of information on this. However, what I want to say is that if two days ago, before I met Simcox, somebody I didn't really know or trust told me it was okay to eat a tomato leaf, I, would have, I don't think I, you could have convinced me until I did some research that it was even possible. I would have found out it was possible by trying to prove you wrong with research. And if you would have eaten a tomato leaf in front of me, I wouldn't have been sitting there waiting for you to die, but I would have been like, there has to be some bullshit going on here, and this can't be true, and you're going to be sick if nothing else. Because everything in my being told me, my grandparents taught me on both sides, my parents knew this, I knew this, everybody knows tomato leaves are poisonous. They're not. They're not. Um, chefs are putting them in. They're making like pestos with them and stuff. And they say not to eat the big stalks because they're fibrous and not very good. But the leaves themselves are can be cooked. They can be used raw. They can be used in salads. They're a little bit spicy. Um, I'm going to admit I haven't tried it yet. But you know what? I'm going to stop right now. I'm going to go out in my greenhouse. I'm going to come back. And I'm going to tell you what a tomato, tomato leaf tastes like to me. How about that? Okay, so I, I, I'm back. I, I, was, I was thinking I was going to come back and be like, ah, go call and point your children, and, and like gagging or whatever. But no, I, I decided not to do that. Um, I have to say that there's nothing unpleasant about it. Um, I don't know that I want to sit down and eat a bowl full of it by itself. And they do have a bit of a, even the leaves have a bit of a fibrous thing where they might benefit from being more of a cooked green, certainly combined with other greens so you get a mix of texture. Uh, I The first thing I thought was pesto, huh? How about a walnut pesto? I, I, I just think it would be fantastic. My other thought was like a pesto mixed into a tomato bruschetta, bringing the leaf and the tomato fruit together. Um, it was fantastic, and if, if I don't die by the end of this podcast, you'll know that they're not poisonous because I ate a pretty significant amount of tomato leaves. So if you hear me, ah, don't eat them. Otherwise, I think you're going to be okay. But go ahead and, and, and ch check that one out. Okay, next up, he was on and on about sunflower species and helanthias, which is a sunflower species, and he was talking about this, this sunflower having this great big white tuber, um, like a carrot. And I'm like, dude, that's a Jerusalem artichoke. And there is a lot of conflation of the plant that I'm about to tell you about and Jerusalem artichoke. But they are not the same thing. And the one I'm talking about indeed grows a single, large, carrot-shaped tuber. He did not know the common name for it. I know something Joseph Sincox doesn't because I can use Google. Um, it's known as woodland sunflower. And it does indeed look an awful lot like Jerusalem artichokes. And they're both Helanthias species. Uh, Helanthias tuberosus is a Jerusalem artichoke that we know and love, and there's many different versions of. Helanthias stromosus is woodland sunflower that's supposed to have this one big tuber. 
I have a link for you from a site that sells seeds. It's the Vermont Wildflower Farm. I am not saying that if you go get those, they're going to be the right seeds. I honestly don't know. This is like one of those plants I think that we need to know more about, and I think there might be some conflation of different varieties in different plants, some called woodland sunflower. But again, uh, it's uh, Helanthus stromosus, and I got info and one seed source for you, and you can start there and try to track it down from there. But that's very interesting to me because Jerusalem artichoke is incredibly pest-free and incredibly productive. I've seen one tuber that weighs, you know, a couple ounces turn into 12 pounds of tubers with Jerusalem artichoke. But, you know, Jerusalem artichoke kind of also has the term fartichoke because they do tend to have a a lot of inulin in them and they don't really break down well. And so they ferment in the lower intestine and then, right? Um, Whether this does that or not, I don't know. And then anything that's a taproot rather than just tubers, generally you're going to have something that has a sweeter taste. And I don't know how big these things are. He says they're gigantic. So that's one just to know about and kind of do some research on and and take from there. But again, woodland sunflower, cousin to Jerusalem artichoke, uh, Helianthus stromosus. The next one, this one, I have a link for some info. So you can start your research. I have no way to track down right now. And maybe when I talk to him, maybe he can give me a source or something like that. But I think a lot of the stuff he has, he's literally gone all over the world and he's gotten these seeds and brought them home and planted them, right? But he calls it a goosey, E-G-U-S-I. And this is an African thing. And the problem with it, it's a type of gourd. And as a, a small gourd, you can use like a squash, like a summer squash. And as a bigger gourd, you use the seeds. Okay. A goosey in Africa would be like if you came to America and you saw this really amazing carrot. Like this purple, like a purple haze carrot, which is a p- beautiful purple carrot, moderate size, really nice taper, dark, deep purple skin. When you peel it, it's got a lighter purple and then it's got like a, a, a yellow core. And you wanted that carrot. And you said, what is that? And instead of somebody saying it's a purple haze carrot, they just said, it's carrot. And you didn't know what carrots were. That's kind of how a goosey is. Like There are dozens and dozens and dozens of plants called a goosey, and they're all a little different. In fact, they would be more different than carrot. right? Because what if carrot meant everything in that family? So... Parsley's in the carrot family. So parsnip's in the carrot family. So you were actually trying to get your hands on a parsnip, and the only word you had was carrot. I don't know if it's that bad, but that's where I'm at with a goosey right now. Now, I have found a goosey seeds on Amazon that are more of you buy the seeds because you want to eat them than plant them. Will they germinate? Whatever. I don't know. I have no idea. And this seems like something really to be looked deeper into. So if anybody out there is aware of where I can get the type of seed that this that, that he's talking about, if there's a source you know of, or if you've grown them yourselves or whatever and be willing to do a seed exchange or something, I, I'd love to know more about this plant. Again, a goosey, E-G-U-S-I. But again, that's like a whole, and I have a link to information about this. This is a Wikipedia page. This is just a, a, a generic term for this type of plant and this type of food um, in uh, parts of Africa. And a lot of times the seeds are actually made into soup. Uh, just would be a, a great thing to learn more about. Next one, um, I was able to track it down. He was talking about it's a zucchini-type squash, which what he really means is a summer squash, uh, from India. And it was, you know, it's this little round ball squash. And it looks, I know what you're thinking, oh, the little green ones with the white stripes and all. No, it's, it looks totally different than any other uh, round summer squash I've ever seen. And it is fast producing. Put the seed in the ground, 45 days you're picking squash. That's so fast that I might be able to grow it before the vine borers kill it. Really, I mean, that's kind of how like, I'm going to go. I'm going to grow it and vine bores and plant another one and I had to kill that one and another plant, you know, that type of thing. Well, as he was talking about, he was talking about Jerry Gettle. 
And, of course, that's Baker Creek, rareseeds.com. So I get on over to there, and I'm looking for, like, Indian zucchini and stuff. I can't find it. So I just go to the squash page, and I just look at all the squashes, and I see this round kind of monocolored squash. I start reading about it, and it says they put it in their restaurant. People love it. That's what he said. That's it. It's called Desi, D-E-S-I, Desi Summer Squash, 45 days from seed to fruit, round zucchini type. It's more like a yellow squash. I, I looked up, and I have a video for you where someone bought some of these seeds and grew it, and they said, yes, it does. 40, 45 days, you're picking. From seed, without like special aquaponics stuff or anything. Just put the seed in the ground, grow it, 45 days. Um, and he said it's nutty. So you think of zucchini as being, like, everybody likes zucchini, but it's kind of bland. And that's why you always got to do something with it to make it into something, you know. Um, but apparently, this one has more of kind of like some... Winter squashes have that kind of nutty, chestnutty uh, component to them. Like uh, Galix Diocene uh, squash is a French squash that has a chestnut flavor to it. I've never been, it takes so long to grow, the bugs and the vine borers always take me out before I grow it. Um, this kind of has some of that going on with it. It's phenomenal. You've got a fast growing summer squash, even fast for a summer squash. Uh, next up. I don't have any trusted source of seeds yet, and I can't find anything that I trust on information yet. Uh, and if you look at the videos, you'll see he talks about a specific variety of this. But dwarf papaya. So there are dwarf papayas, and I'm going to do some more research. Um, I believe one of the catalogs I buy from sells this, and I'll, I'll check into it and see if I can find one that way for you. And if I do, I'll let you know next week when we come back after the weekend coming up. Um, But I've never bothered to even think about growing papaya. I'm in zone 8. Some some years it's more like zone 7 uh, as far as the winters, depending on whether I get a mild winter or a harsh winter. And um, it's just too much trouble to think about a huge tree like a papaya. Well, there are papayas apparently that only grow a few feet tall. They are easy to grow in a pot. And you know what, just something like a hand truck dolly or something like that, you bring them in in the winter and you can grow your own papayas. Now, papayas are an amazing fruit. I won't eat too many of them because there's a lot of sugar in them, but to be able to grow your own papaya, that sounds pretty interesting to me. So that was that was the, the iffiest of all of them that I have uh, here for you, whether or not you know there'll be something that will grow for you. But I wanted to give you something a little edgy, a little challenging to do, so check out Dwarf Papaya. And I, I found some seed sources, and when I did some research on the people behind them and reviews and stuff, none of them sounded very good to me, and I ran out of time getting the show together for you today. So I didn't want to give you one and say, don't buy these, but here's what I'm talking about. I didn't want you to even do that because I don't want you buying something I link to so if I link to a seed source, I am saying you can buy those seeds, and they're, they're worth buying. Next one, uh, another plant he had, call, it was called Ebon. I-B-A-N, eggplant, Ebon. When I heard him first say that, I thought he was talking about Ichiban, which I grow. Ichiban is a hybrid Japanese eggplant. It's a wonderful plant. It's huge, very, very productive. Lots and lots of eggplant on it. Tastes wonderful. Um, classic Asian eggplant. This is more of like a Taiwanese eggplant. But it has more of like a citrusy sour taste to it. It's yellow. There's lots of yellow eggplants, but most of them are not this Iban. It's I-B-A-N, but it's pronounced Iban. Um, it's done a lot in soups. It has to be cooked longer than most eggplants. It, apparently, it's incredibly hardy. Uh, it's very, very popular where it's grown and very hard to find. I can find info on it, so you know when you look at the, the link that says info in the show notes today, this is the plant, this is the eggplant Jack's talking about. I have not been able to find any seed. I have found that it may, it might also be known as terung, T-E-R-U-N-G, eggplant, but I'm not sure of that. That's how new this is, that I, I'm not even sure if it's, if it's the case. Um, but... You know, again, it's another plant. Like, if it grows like other eggplants and it's good, you can have as much of it as you want. And it's one of those types of things that, you know, you can have a little side business just with seeds when you start growing stuff like this because they are hard to come by. When, when I'm sitting here on Google and I'm not exactly incompetent when it comes to finding stuff and I can't find a place to buy seeds from, that means there's opportunity. And the more people learn about these plants, the more people want to buy them. That's really true of the next one. How about Lu Han Go? 
Luhan Go. Luhan Go, as soon as I heard him start talking about what it really was, I'm like, it's monk fruit. And I was like, you can't get monk fruit seeds because it comes from China, and China is basically like Venice was with glass in the heyday of, 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 of glass, uh, of, of certain types of like blown glass and, and stained glass. They basically didn't let anybody leave. Once they came in and learned how to do the glass work in Venice, I'm uh, not Venice, of uh, Sicily. Sicily had a time where they were like the monopoly on all of the glass for the churches and stuff like that. And they, like when you came in and you learned how to do it, you could never leave. Like they'll kill you before they will let you take the secrets of their glass making with them. Uh, something to that effect that I remember from our history segments uh, in the past. But so China has actually like even when you went to a market in China and bought monk fruit, you could actually buy the fruit. The seeds had already been removed or they had been uh, destroyed. Apparently, seed has gotten out, and you can get seed. I was not able to find any that I trusted to recommend for you. But monk fruit is a lot of the sweeteners that we're using now in the world of keto, like Lakanto sweetener, it's monk fruit sweetening. It would be really interesting to be able to grow that plant yourself. Again, the vine itself is known as Luhan Go, and uh, apparently seed is out there. I just don't have one that I trust yet. The last one um, is in the aster family. It's a flower and a medicinal herb. Uh, it's commonly known as toothache plant. Toothache plant. You can get seeds. You can get live plants. I've got a link for info as well. Um, and you might think, well, what real value is there in toothache plant? Toothache plant has kind of a, a mildly numbing effect. So it can be chewed, and if you have a sore tooth, you know, put up against it, and it might mildly help reduce the pain. Well, cloves do that. Clove actually is more effective. Clove oil is more effective at that application than this plant. So what does it really do for you? Well, it's easy to grow. It's an asters are easy. Anything in the aster family is easy to grow. Uh, they'll go almost weed-like once you get a couple generations in. Um, it turns out that in Brazil, it's heavily used in soups and stews as a flavoring agent. And The flavor comes out of it so much that if you cook the the, the leaves from this plant and you taste the leaves, they, they're, they're flavorless. But the flavor goes into the broth. And it, it, it does the same kind of thing that MSG does for a soup with that huge beefed up flavor, but it's not MSG. It's just this herb. So that's now, now you got something that's basically a flower that's really cool. It's also known as bullseye. Uh, Underwood Garden sells seeds for it. They call it bullseye. So it's got this really cool bullseye look to the flowers. Great flower, aster, easy to grow, but it's a soup flavoring. Now, I don't know if it can be dried and hold on to that ability, but I don't see why it wouldn't. So there you go, uh, 12 plants, that most of which I'm going to bet you'd never heard of before, that you can now start doing research on and figure out which ones you want to give it a try. I don't suggest that you go out and get all of this and try to grow it this year. I mean, that many new th and if you want to, go ahead, don't. Don't get me wrong. If you can find some of the stuff I couldn't find, you know, including. But, you know, if you pick a couple and just try it and see if it works for you. Like I said, if you can find a couple of these every year, it's like every time you do that, it's like getting another set of plates for your counterfeit money-making machine. Because think of all the great stuff that that brings to you. And a big part of this is what, you know, what Joseph was talking about yesterday. If you grow this much diversity and some of your stuff dies, you don't really care because you have still some level of security. What I want to finish with is the reason I love stuff like this. I'm almost 50 years old. I'm going to be 50 before I know it. And I have been into this, maybe not to the level that Simcox is. I never asked for squash for a, for a birthday present when I was a little kid. Um, but I've been into this for a long time. I grew, I remember when I was like eight years old, my grandparents bought a house. In Jacksonville, Florida. Um, this is my grandparents on my mother's side, not the, the ones, the Ukrainian ones from Pennsylvania. It's before we had moved back to Pennsylvania. And we built this house, or they built their house, and it was a neighborhood that was getting developed. But when they first put their house in, there was woods behind it. And it was a good two or three years after they moved to that house before you know those woods were all clear-cut and the next set of houses were built. So we had these woods back there. And my grandmother was big into feeding the birds, and she put all the bird feeders out, and I would go out and fill the bird feeders. And then I started putting the bird seed on the ground for the doves and because quail were coming from the woods. 
And I liked seeing the doves and the quail, and they liked being on the ground, so I was starting to put all the bird seed on the ground. Well, the bird seed started sprouting. So I like got a bunch of her bricks and stuff, and I made like a bird seed garden. So I put new bird seed in there every day, but the stuff that grew, I would let it grow, and then the quail would come eat it and all like and I started cultivating the bird seed. And then I got a hold of some carrots and some some beans, and I planted beans and carrots where the birds were eating. You know? And son of a gun, the birds didn't eat the beans and carrots. They left them alone, but they were in there eating the bird seed all the time, and the birds were pooping, and it was making it grow. And I had the carrots growing right in between the rows of beans, and then when the beans were gone, the carrots were finally big enough to pick the carrots. Like, I was doing that when I was eight, nine years old, without anybody incentivizing me. So I love this stuff. And I've been doing this stuff for 40 years, roughly, at this point. Guess what? I could learn about a new plant a day for the rest of my life if I live to be 100 and never run out of plants to learn about that can do something for me. And that is the gift that plants are to humans. And like Joe said yesterday, we have lost so much indigenous knowledge over the years. And these plants didn't go away. They didn't go away. They're still there. And we don't even know what we might find at some point. You know, one of the things Joe talked about yesterday was some of these places they've cleared forest. And there were no bananas in the forest. The jungle in South America. They cleared this area of jungle. And there was no bananas anywhere to be seen. And all of a sudden, wild bananas start growing. And they thought the seed from these varieties of wild bananas could be maybe five years old and still germinate, especially when they're not preserved in some way, just laying in the seed bank of nature. Well, those some of those parts in the jungle, hundreds of years or more, had gone by since there had been a banana on that land. The seed has been laying there for tens or hundreds of years. Inert. And as soon as the conditions were right, it germinated. We have no idea when it comes to botany what's out there waiting to be discovered. And in many cases, and in fact in most cases, rediscovered or allowed to reemerge as we work with and repair nature. And that's what I think we're doing even in the cultivation of gardens in our backyard. That's why I love this, and that's why I hope you guys enjoyed this episode on 12 plants that you probably didn't know about. I guarantee if you knew about all these plants, you should have been a guest on the show long ago. I'll just say that. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, if you like this show and you want to help support us, and gee, I just told you you could eat tomato leaves. If nobody else ever told you that, that's worth supporting us alone, right? Uh, consider becoming a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on, click on members to sign up. Use discount code 25 bucks. You can get your uh, membership for $25 a year. I was doing that during the COVID lockdown. I'm going to end that after next week. No matter where we are in the lockdown, I think we've opened up enough that I can say, because I'm going, I'm going out to literally kill grandma with my wife today. Yeah. Well, my wife's grandma and I'm grandpa, so I'm going to kill myself. I don't know. We're going to go to Gloria's Latin Cuisine and have a good meal for dinner tonight. right? So I guess, I'm, I, guess I don't care. I just want old people to die. I'm going to go out and spread COVID even though I don't have it. I, I don't know. I'm going to go have a meal tonight. So uh, I'm going to go out. So I can go out to restaurants. I can go out to stores. I can do everything. I'm going to call it over. I know some places are still locked down. So I'm going to give one week on that sale. Next up. Item of the day today and shop at tspaz.com for the item of the day and to always help us. Even if you buy something totally unrelated to anything I've ever talked about, if you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you can help us out. Today's item of the day is one I brought around a long time ago and I haven't talked about it in a while and I thought it was a good day to update you on this one. This is the Wisdom Panel 3.0 Breed Identification DNA Test Kit. They're going to track me. It's for your dog. Relax. Okay? It's the Wisdom Plant Panel DNA test kit for your dog. Why would you want to do this? Well, if you have a purebred dog, you wouldn't. Unless you want to know certain things, there's other tests you can do for a purebred dog. This is for a mixed breed when somebody says to you, what kind of dog do you got? And you go, oh, that's, you know, or I think, but you don't know. Which many of us do because we are adopters. I think that there's so many dogs out there that I always try to adopt and rescue dogs. Well, the dog that this was the most beneficial for me, I had Charlie and Lucy both tested. Charlie's a pit bull pointer. Lucy's an almost pit bull. She's really a Stafford Terrier. It's really, yeah, it might as well be a pit bull. Pit bull. Um, but she doesn't look like a pit bull. And she's only a part pit bull. She's 50% Siberian Husky. 
37.5% Stafford, American Stafford Terrier, and 12.5% freaking Dalmatian. And you might like go, well, that's neat to know, and is it worth 70 bucks? I don't know. I think it is, just, just on the neat to know and, and, and to know what I have. I thought it was worth it. It was easy to do. They send you two swabs. You put them inside the dog's mouth between like their teeth and their cheek. You hold the cheek, and you turn the swab back and forth. I know what you're thinking. My dog will never let me do that. Both of them are not big on stuff like that. Both of them kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? Like They just didn't even care. It didn't bother them. It was crazy um, that they let me do it. But when I learned that about her, I realized that I thought I had this really timid dog, but I had seen courage in her, and I knew that was the Stafford. And I knew I needed to bring that out more. And I've been working with her for three years since I got these results. And now she's the aggressor at the gate more than Charlie is. Because Charlie, if you've been here... You know that if I don't let you in that gate, he will tear your ass apart. You do not get in unless somebody lets you in, and then you're fine. Um, between him mimicking her and me working with her to bring out her courage, he now stands back and watches her guard the gate. When somebody's like bringing mail or something, she does all the aggression. He's back like, you know, if I need to come bite somebody's face off, I'll do it, but you got this. It, 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 it's amazing. She's gotten very good at uh, chasing away predators chasing away the bad bird, etc. I mean, I've put so much more work into her because I always felt like she just didn't have it. We also always thought she had some kind of shepherd mix and God knows what else in her. And when I found out she's a husky, that made me even more think, I'm not going to be able to get that aggression out. Huskies, like the reason they don't make good watchdogs is they love everybody. She has this nice balance, though, because of the staff in her. She also has some dumbness in her because huskies are stubborn and Dalmatians are stupid. Um, sorry if you own one, but they are. Uh, so I have limitations, but I also thought I would never get past her predator instinct. But by understanding what I was dealing with, I can now use her to move my birds, which I never thought I would be able to do. I thought it was going to be uh, almost insurmountable. You know, I had to use a shock collar to get her to stop killing them. So if I turned her on, I wouldn't be able But by understanding the dog's intrinsic characteristics and going slow and knowing what to look for, I have an incredible dog And a lot of it I can give credit to knowing what I had to deal with so I knew the intrinsic characteristics of the animal. So that's why I think it's a great thing. Plus, it tests for a specific gene that tells you not to give your animals certain medications, and those medications could kill your animals. And that test alone is like 40 bucks with your vet, and it's included in the $70 kit that gives all the other information. You can see the printout of uh, the reports and everything you get in the write-up today, and you can find out about it and a bunch of other things at TSP. AZTSpaz.com. With that, let's wrap things up with Song of the Day today. Song of the Day today is by uh, Steve Winwood, and it's called Freedom Overspill. And this song really, I mean, I think what it's about is a couple arguing at night. So I don't really know why the term Freedom Overspill is there, unless maybe when you get the freedom to say what you really think, maybe you say too much. But that's what I get out of it. It's got a very funky kind of guitar-rippy, techno 80s sound, and it's from the 80s. Um, it was from the album High Life, which was one of Steve's two really big hits. He had this one, and it was a song in the 80s called Valerie. Um, he was like a two-hit wonder that was a little bit more than that. Uh, he did have some other you know, successful songs in his successful career, in our, but those are like the two songs. This is one a lot of people probably wouldn't remember, but if you want to get transported back to the 80s, and who doesn't? Unless you're so damn young you don't remember the 80s. Um, I think you'll enjoy this song. And if nothing else, it's a happy show. And it ends kind of with a funky, upbeat-sounding song about a fight. All right. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.